Welcome, everyone. This is all about Windows Phone Insight podcast number 200. I can't believe we've got there. 200, Rafe. Yeah, it seems like it's uh, a long time ago we first started doing this podcast, but I guess we're dating back to sort of uh, 2011 when we first did the All About Windows Phone one. But I know we were also up to something like 275 or so on the All About Simian ones, most of which uh, I think we've we've both been on for the vast majority of them. So we've recorded well over 400 podcasts together, and I suspect uh, it won't be too long before we get to 500, but a big number for the All About Windows Phone Insight podcast. Um, I guess that means that some people have listened to our dulcet tones for anything up to about 150 hours for I'm not sure whether to apologise or say thank you very much for some of our dedicated <laughs> listeners out there. And, and it surprised me because we've uh, kept a lot of listeners, even as uh, some of the changes have happened in the last 18 months or so in the uh, Windows phone and obviously now the Windows 10 mobile world. So I suspect a lot of people uh, like listening to some of the diversions that we, we get to. So in that case, we've got a very special episode for people, haven't we, Steve? Well, I'm also going to put this out, yes, and on the All About Symbian channel, if I can work out how to do it, because I think a lot of what I'm going to be chatting about by popular demand will actually cover all things Symbian, all things Windows Phone, all things computing, and all things that actually predate all of that stuff. But uh, Rafe, just set this up. What's, what's this Origins series that you've started over at 361? Yes, so we are indeed talking about origins, and like you said, it predates computing itself, especially when we're talking about Steve Litchfield. <laughs> okay. Oh, sorry, Steve, I couldn't resist that. So th- this actually dates from um, on 361 Podcast, which for those that don't know is uh, another podcast I run with uh, friends uh, Ben Smith and Ewan McLeod. We decided, or rather I was forced into, doing an origins episode where we talked about kind of our early years, how we got into computing, you know, a little bit of personal information, trying to kind of tell people a bit more about us. And actually, all three of us have done one of those Origins podcasts. And there's one for me and one for Ben and Euron as well. And uh, Steve sat there listening to them. And one day I surprised him and said, wouldn't you really like to do an Origins podcast of your own? And somewhat through gritted teeth, perhaps, he said, oh, what a fantastic idea. And uh, we've had lots of emails about it saying, when's it coming? And we thought it would be a really great time to do it as a way of celebrating our 200th podcast. We're going to tell you all about the origins of Steve Litchfield, which are going to go back to his dim and distant youth, but also through his history of computing. And for anyone that knows uh, Steve even vaguely, you know, has a very, very long history in mobile computing and writing about it, actually longer than anyone else I can think of. Um, and it's going to be absolutely <laughs> fascinating taking people through this. And I'm sure we're going to have some good good detours along the way. Uh, so, Steve, are you ready to go? Yeah, I guess I should really start with um, some technical stuff and some computing stuff, because that's what people have tuned in for. But there will be some personal notes along the way, I promise. Excellent. It's not it's not all, um, all all work. There are some players where I, well, I first touched a computer my second year of university. It was an, a research machines uh, 380Z, if I've got the model number right, with two five and a quarter inch floppy disks. And that was it. Um, do you remember the RM, RM380s, Rafe? 
you're, you're funnily enough, Steve, this no, is before don't. my time. <laughs> and, and just for those that don't know, floppy disks are what the save icon used to look like. <laughs> and these are the floppy floppy disks, not the yeah, rigid the floppy, floppy disks. Floppy yeah. Disk. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, I discovered that BASIC actually made an awful lot of sense to my logical brain, and I kind of discovered programming. I wrote an arcade game that had other, other students at university, yeah. uh, Oxford University, playing through the night, because basically the computer, there, there was like t- two computers for the entire entire college. Um and it was, they were in use all day long with various projects and courses. So, of course, we had to use them at night. So at night time, myself and half a half dozen others, we'd sort of gather around the computer and I'd code and write the game. And then I'd sit there watching them playing. And then I'd spot a bug or an issue or something I could improve. And then I'd elbow them aside with, I can fix that. Give me 10 minutes. And I'd literally go into the code, type in the new lines of code, fix the problem, save it, and then bam, they'd be run, they'd be back playing. Now, that's what I call a response time from a developer, 10 minutes. Right. Yeah, very impressive. I'm not sure about the, what it did to your university degree. Because um, you're <laughs> Oxford. What, what were you studying, Steve? I was studying physics, and I ended up with a 2-2, which I kind of just scraped. There were an awful lot of distractions at university, and computing was just <laughs> one of them. And I'm, I'm kind of relieved to have got out of it with a second. Okay, so I think we better draw a bit there over some of those other distractions because we don't really want to know what uh, Steve. Well, actually, I'm sure people do, but Steve doesn't want to tell people. So, um, <laughs> after university, what came next? Uh, I left university in 1983. Um, I joined British Aerospace, working on laser gyro software modelling, which is all, all very interesting and all very cutting edge. Um, I also had some practical tasks to do on the, the glass laser gyros, and I managed one day with uh, just one drop of glue in the wrong place and managed to write off a £100,000 prototype that was completely irreplaceable and basically put the entire project back six months. And I still maintain it wasn't my fault. The gyro was defective, but I learned a lesson that day that <laughs> hardware really wasn't for me and to stick to software, where if something doesn't work or compile, you just fix it, try again, run it again, and all you've lost is 10 minutes of time or whatever. I think writing off a, a, a six-month project just with one drop of glue, I think that's just too risky for me. Yeah, it's, it's quite impressive. So so just explain to me um, what these gyros actually do. Presumably it's related to aeroplanes in some ways and making sure they don't fall out the sky. Yeah, basically you have triangular um, wedges of glass with two laser beams injected into cavities in the glass filled with some some gas or other, and the two laser beams go contra, contrary directions. And then but as the, the laser gyro rotates... The interfering laser beams and the kind of moiré fringe effects on the output prism, they tell you which way the um, how far the gyro has been turned. It's all rather sophisticated and I have forgotten an awful lot of it, but that's the basic principle. Laser gyros, we were miles behind the Americans, though, and I always wondered why we kept on trying to do it when Honeywell over in America were just so far ahead of us. There you go. I bet you never thought you'd hear about gyroscopes and lasers on the uh, All About Insight podcast. So, I mean, obviously you were working in an engineering firm, but I'm guessing that computing was still very close to your heart. And is, I know that's sort of where you got into, um, even when working for British Aerospace. Yeah, I, I found I enjoyed the programming much more than the engineering. And I quickly became a, a sort of system manager of, first of all, our HP mini computer for doing all the engineering work, which managed all the test stations. Uh, and then there are deck mini computers, the Vaxes and so forth, um, across the whole whole British Aerospace site. And I ended up after four or five years at British Aerospace, I was managing the Vax cluster across for three thousand employees, which I, I was kind of fortuitous to end up in that role. But I, I, I relished it, and I really, really, really enjoyed it. Oh, well, there we go. And it's probably worth saying at this point, back in uh, nineteen eighty three. 
I should probably point out, somewhat embarrassingly, at this point, I was exactly one year old while Steve was already <laughs> earning a crest. Um, but computers weren't exactly commonplace in the workplace. And when you're talking about uh, mini computers in that cluster, actually, it's yeah. very different to the way we think about computing in the workplace today. Yeah, absolutely. They just got that earliest HP mini computer that I started working on in 1984. Um, give you an idea we, we had an expand expansion of its storage system at, at, at one year i remember it's great excitement it came in on a van and it was a brand new hard disk for the computer and the hard disk was 16 megabytes <laughs> one six megabytes and the the, the the expansion disk came in its own cabinet on casters and it measured something like a meter by a meter by half a meter 16 megabytes uh, the entire mini HP mini computer, I remember, it had to be sited in a room with air conditioning to keep the mini computer cool, which is great because in the summer, when the, all the other employees of British Aerospace were sweltering in their non-air conditioned offices, I could just sort of, no, I'm, I'm programming today, and I and I'd do all my work programming in the air conditioned computer room, and it was wonderful. But I digress. <laughs> so I also know from uh, your history of British Aerospace. You did have a case of uh, mistaken identity. Now, I think this is a story that's worth sharing. <laughs> As part of my engineering training, I needed to go and take some some photos. For a report I was writing at one of the nearby British aerospace sites, there were two or three across Bracknell. I phoned ahead and the word got round that someone called Litchfield was coming to take photographs. And it was assumed that this was apparently Lord Litchfield. <laughs> and I was met by some very smartly dressed people who were very, very disappointed by the lad in T-shirt and jeans who actually arrived on foot. <clears throat> And it's worth pointing out for for those that don't know, probably some of our overseas listeners, Lord Litchfield is a very famous photographer. And I'm afraid to say there isn't any passing resemblance to Steve, uh, no. even when he was looking looking very young. But you heard it here first. That was basically Steve Litchfield's first ever photo shootout or head to head. So I think maybe switch away from work life because there is a personal dimension we want to touch on on briefly. Although, of course, the main interest here is tech and computers. So about this time. I think I'm right in saying you got married, isn't that right, Steve? Yes, yes, yes. Um, we, we just kind of skipped over another p- thing I should have put in the show notes, which I lived in a motor caravan for three years, and I thought oh, I'd just give, yes. g- g- give up on living in bricks and mortar in the world. But when I met my, my now wife of 27 years, she, funnily enough, she refused to live in a camper van, and she wanted to live in a proper <laughs> house. You do so, surprise me. Yeah, but if you ship- go and look on the Three Lib website, I think there's still the remains of some uh, commentary yeah. on what the best camper vans are. I do yeah. remember that reading that many years ago. Yeah, there's a whole article I wrote for a motor caravanning magazine on what it was like to live in one. But anyway, it was, it was not to be, and I, I had to devolve to more traditional means of accommodation. And I've been married now for yeah 27 years, and we have a, a daughter who's 17 as well. So a happy family is the background to all of this uh, technology. I, I was made redundant in 1990, funnily enough, a year after getting married from British Aerospace closed the entire site in Bracknell and they shipped the people who wanted to down to Plymouth and I, I opted to stay up here. I joined another aerospace company to manage their, their vaxes. They were called, uh, I think it's called microvaxes. Um, and they're, they're, see, see how computers are shrinking. These microvaxes were still the size of a small sort of expansion freezer, but th- obviously the, the, the internal specs were much higher. Do some Fortran programming. Anyone remember Fortran, Rafe? Um, again, I mean, I, I've heard of the term, but yeah, bear in mind, I'm still only uh, about eight years old at this point in time, Stephen. So I've barely even heard of computers, although, as you'll hear in my origin story, there was some uh, Amstrad action in my life. 
<laughs> anyway, I went to this let's say other site, uh, this other company to to manage their microvaxes, and my interview for getting in was a five minute relaxed chat. I basically met their CEO, who was very technical, uh, and, he, and we basically chatted around how great certain programming language, languages were for about five minutes. And he said, "Well, that's it. You've got the job." So it was the most relaxing interview of my entire <laughs> life. And it worked out rather well. Um, one of my favourite things to do, by the way, in that company over the, the early 1990s, it's not quite a con, but still very cool, was that I'd often have to stay late to do backups, which were done on tape cassette and these uh, microvaxes, even the early 1990s. No internet, of course, <laughs> to back up to. So I'd be there on, a, say, a lunchtime to 10pm shift, really enjoying having the place to myself after others had gone home, playing games, reading books, whatever, while the tapes would. And every once in an hour, the tape would pop out and I'd pop a new one in. And then the managing director would sometimes come in, you know, really late after a trip, notice me at my desk at 9pm and say, how diligent and hardworking I must be to still be at work four hours after everybody else has gone home. Of course, I never told them I didn't arrive until lunchtime. <laughs> uh, Steve, you spoilt it all, but um, you've always been diligent and hardworking as far as I'm concerned. Um, but that that's a kind of a great highlights through some of your early career but i suspect people also want us to talk about some mobile computing because at the moment we're still talking about fridge sized computers yeah. but it was uh, about this time uh, and again i sort of this is when i just start vaguely remembering things um, <laughs> it's the time of uh, david potter and the sign i believe yeah the sign started back in the 80s with these sort of very long um they weren't QWERTY. They were alphabetic keyboard, uh, Organizer 1 and Organizer 2 and the Organizer LZ, which I never really got into because I just couldn't face typing on a keyboard that started with A and ended in Z. Um, but then in 1991, they released the Scion Series 3, which was a clamshell, QWERTY keyboarded, multitasking, um, it had a VMS-like kernel. VMS was the VAX operating system, a really, really sophisticated system. And this was all in the palm of your hand running on two AA batteries. It included a, a VT terminal emulation, which is the, the terminal um, pr protocols used by those VAX, uh, early VAX terminals, which meant that I could then dial in from home to manage my work mini computers um, from my Scion palm top wherever I was in the world. Now, you may think, well, this is the in this Internet age. Of course, that's trivial. You can dial in to manage any computer from anywhere. No, this was via a 1200 BPS, i.e. 1200 board, i.e. 0.001 megabits per second. I'll, I'll, I'll repeat that. 0.001 megabits per second pocket modem. Plus, that was what dialed into, a, connected to a Scion 3-link modem adapter, and then a, a maze of other RS-232 physical adapters, you know, uh, male and female and all sorts. I was basically daisy-chained across my hallway. So when one end was the Scion, and one end was was the phone line, the master phone line. In between them, there was all manner of other bits of wire and cable. And at the other end of the phone line, there was the 1,200-board modem that let me dial, actually connect to the work mini computer if you think how easy how trivial this sort of stuff is today and how complicated it was then but i could do it for the very first time i could work remotely and that really excited me and and presumably when you were doing this i mean this was absolutely cutting edge i mean like you say now you don't even think about it and i think one thing that's remarkable about looking back from when you started just how much things have changed i mean we talk about it in the age of the smartphone in the last 10 years but you know, going back even further, it just magnifies that even more. But presumably, even then, you were sort of being seen as someone who was maybe a little bit ahead of his time. 
I think I probably was <laughs> in some way. Certainly in terms of wanting to work remotely and in terms of wanting to work well mobile, I think that was the distinguishing factor. And that's, of course, what led me into investing more of my time and effort into Scion as a, as a palm top computer and mobile computer. And of course, then into other, other PDAs and smartphones in years to come. I, I, I went on holiday in my, uh, one of my various camper vans. We still had motor caravans even after we got married, thankfully. Um, and I was a bit bored. Um, and I thought, well, I've got, I've, no problem. I've got my Scion. And the, the Scion palm tops including a ba- included a basic like programming language called OPL. Um, and I created a little golf game um, called Pitch and Putt. I created it in, in about a week. Um, but it was uh, very loosely based on electronic arts, um, PGA Tour golf, that kind of style. So I uploaded this game onto various dial-up bulletin board systems and kicks um, and CompuServe and all the precursors to the internet and the various Scion forums. And I got called up by Scion's marketing chief of the day, who just telephoned me out of the blue. He said he wanted to put my game onto the very first Scion Games pack, which is incredibly exciting. Wow, Wow. that must have been really exciting, because presumably this was one of the first times you've heard from one of these big companies, particularly, and, and that kicked off a very long association with Scion. Absolutely, and they, and it also came with some money. I mean, is the, 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 the shareware game Pitch and Pet, I don't even remember whether I charged for it now, but it wasn't bringing in more than a few pennies. And here was a, a major company, uh, a pioneer in the mobile world, saying, we want to use your game. And by the way, we're going to pay you £2,000 or whatever it was. <laughs> I forget the fee now, but it was a, a lot of money for a humble, basic-like programmer like me. It's probably worth saying that OPL was, um, I think, something that really deserves more respect than it's got over the years because it really did enable the whole shareware and hobbyist programmer scene in the Sun world. And that did make it stand out um, from some of its competitors. And we'll, we'll kind of touch on more some of the implications of that, that later. And it's one of the things I always think it was a bit of a shame that it was lost later on from, from Symbian because what it enabled you to do was create applications which looked just like the built-in ones just using it, it was basic uh, a basic light language, but it had been very well thought out and it was possible to do quite sophisticated things, as indeed you proved, Steve, because the, the first uh, game that I remember playing um, or on the sign that I got was actually uh, Fairway, which is, I believe you're right, I'm right in saying an evolution of that original sort of pitch and putt game. Yes, it was. Did you register it? Do you owe me any money? I'm pretty sure I did register it, but um, I it was on the series uh, on the Science Series Five, which is actually yeah. the uh, kind of successor to the device that we've just been talking about. Yeah, yeah. So it, it's Fairway did pretty well. I did a, a version for a, a the Science Series Five games pack as well. So there really was quite a collaboration going on there with Science in a, in parallel to the the sort of shareware world. Um, I was kind of drawn to the shareware world. The idea of just never mind the commercial license agreements and the interminable meetings and some of the paperwork you had to go through to get any kind of retail presence for any kind of software distribution in those days. I thought, I know, we'll use these bulletin boards, these wonderful online places, and I'll literally just give the game away and have a nag screen at the front. And if people like it, they'll send me money. And I thought, surely that can't work can it but people were doing it and back in those days back in the 1990s rave shareware used to work and a shareware author would say get a thousand downloads off his application or game and off of those a thousand downloads they might get 10 15 20 30 40 even 50 people would be honest enough to pay the shareware fee so shareware development was a very real thing i know alan ritchie who developed rmr bank one of my friends uh, from the science world back in the days i think he had something like twenty thousand registrations 
20,000 sales of some of a, of a Scion application is a huge number for the time. Now, these days, you know, we're used to phones selling in the tens of millions and we're used to programs getting uh, 50 million downloads. But it, th- this was a time when only 0.01% of the population owned a mobile or device of any kind. So these numbers, I think I had about 3,000 registrations for my Mapper program. And he is, uh, so these numbers were huge to us, but very small by modern standards. Yeah, and I, I think it's worth emphasizing, you know, this is before the App Store or anything like that. So actually distribution, it, you had to make quite an effort to download and install software. And so I, I suspect it was only a portion of the user base. And admittedly, they were yeah. more engaged because they were kind of, I think it's fair to say, tech savvy users for the most part. But, you know, I can remember there being a whole world out there. And as you say, the, the shareware system was basically based on you being honorable and decent enough if you yeah. were using something. And absolutely, I agree. It worked really well because, of course, it made sense in a world where you didn't have internet distribution, where you could just try something very easily. Um, and I can absolutely remember dialing up to CompuServe and, and doing downloads uh, that way. Yeah. Um, and it, it's that you know every now and then I kind of shed a tear for the world world that's lost because actually the kind of the the sense of community was definitely enormous back then. Um, and actually, Steve, I mean, probably the first time I can remember coming into contact with your name, even if I wasn't brave enough to. Uh, talk to you was when you were uh, kind of you evolved from being a software developer and you kept doing you've actually referred to a couple of applications including uh, gb mapper which i think was one of your most successful ones yeah. but you kind of started running a science shareware library that got uh, called three lib and this was what early 1990s Yes, it was. The, the, the name is interesting, actually, because Cyan, of course, called everything to do with the Series 3, three hyphen something. So there'd be the three link and the three facts and whatever. Uh, so I thought, I know, I'll go along with their naming scheme. and I'll call my shareware library 3lib, which kind of is a, a bizarre name to be living with now in 2016. But it does mean that I, I used to get at the, the start of every single alphabetical directory of Cyan services <laughs> and goods. <laughs> so there'd be all these companies with their big budgets and their big products, and they'll all be behind this little scrappy guy running a shareware library simply because the name started with a number which i was quite quite amusing but um yeah the kicks and compi and bulletin boards are the only real way to distribute programs then i thought this is crazy most scion owners just don't realize that these applications i was writing and other people i was finding um they don't realize they exist i know i'll advertise in magazines so things like micromart I used to advertise on pers- personal computer world, if I remember that title right. I put small ads saying lots of science shareware on floppy disks. Send me a blank floppy disk and I'll fill it with shareware um, and send it back. And then you can cop- install it via your Scion lead and so forth. And it kind of took off. And I, to get the listings, people basically sent, used to send me a stamped addressed envelope to get the library. Uh, and then they'd, later on, they'd send a stamped addressed Jiffy bag with blank floppies in it. And I'd fill them with software and return sometimes they'd send in an unformatted floppy disk or discs in some cases up to 12 of them and i'd have to sit there formatting them the slow way so formatting a floppy disk would take uh, something up to a minute so 12 floppy disks one a minute just so boring and that's before i even started copying the files so it did all or rather get rather tiresome yeah i can i can imagine but you're just to reiterate here we're talking about no more than a dozen floppy disks were covering the entirety of the shareware <laughs> library, <laughs> which is pretty amazing to think about it. So, you know, we're talking what, uh, no more than sort of uh, 18 or so megabytes. Uh, and that was all the software that was worth saying that this was several hundred applications, yeah, yeah, yeah. To, if not more. And of course, now that would barely cover half of one application being downloaded onto your, onto yeah. your modern smartphone. Um, and 
there was a, a small commercial software scene for Cyan as well, where you could buy kind of shrink wrap packages and there was purple software and a couple of others. I'm just trying to remember some of the names. Um, but actually, Threader was absolutely the centre of the Cyan software scene. Um, yeah. So uh, I, I know you, you kind of transitioned from it being kind of a part-time, almost a hobby, to it becoming effectively your, your job about this time as well. Yeah, I got fed up because the original aerospace I joined after British Aerospace, they got bought out by the giant BF Goodrich, the people who make the tyres and various other enterprises. And the new management, they brought their own cronies and ideas in, and I was all getting a bit fed up. And But by this time, my three-lib um, shareware library, I was spending about four or five hours copying floppy disks and sending them out each day. And it was starting to make as much money as my main business. So I thought, oh, blow it, I'll just go go self-employed. And I've been self-employed for the last 23 years. So it's, it's, it, wow. it's, it's kind, of, kind of worked out. And I've kind of got through most of my life with, uh, without actually having to work terribly hard for a living, which is a, a shocking statement. Well, I, I'm sorry, but I'm going to have to disagree with that because I know you work <laughs> incredibly hard. So uh, don't do yourself down. The other story I like about this period is you used to go through a, a floppy disk drive every two months because you were copying so many disks uh, back <laughs> oh, yeah. and forth. Um, but presumably, I mean... Uh, this was a bit, I mean, Cyan went through some upheavals about this time, but also we're starting to see the rise of the, the internet as well. Um, and you sort of did have to transition for, well, you went from floppies to CDs, I imagine, yeah. but also the rise of the internet. But maybe talk about that and, you know, what was yeah. happening to Cyan at this time. Yeah, Cyan went from Series 3 to Series 5 to Series 7, but uh, they did kind of get shafted a bit. They were had plans to uh, make a, a communicator, a really futuristic communicator with Motorola, and Motorola pulled out at the last minute, and that really pulled the rug from under Cyan's feet. So Cyan kind of gave in the, the, threw in the towel around about 1998, 1999, I want to say, which was a shame, really. But the 3Lib was going strong, and there was a real community of something like um, 500,000, 600,000 Scion owners around the world, many of whom seem to be writing to me. <laughs> it was, it all did get a bit overwhelming. This, the internet started. That was quite exciting. I remember GeoCities and were the very first homepages, this, this, this dot-com thing where you could actually put your own content online. And I, then I had a call out of the blue from the people who ran UK Online, another, a UK-based company, and they said they're looking for some people to... Um, put content on their site and would i be interested in doing a kind of scion um and uh, technology section so I, I signed on with them and i was with them for well over a decade um the three lib web page which uh, i ran from started about 1995 uh, starting say starting on uk online uh, my my unique selling point was i put up a new piece of content every day which is kind of kept this day with all about windows phone of course all about symbian before it the idea is there's always something new every day um, and it's a wonderful anecdote I do like. I've told a few times before about people thanking me for my site. And when I asked them what they liked about it, expecting them to say, well, you know, like the reviews, like the features, like the directories. They said, well, we like the fact you put the date on the front. And I said, what? <laughs> and apparently it's because it was always the current day because there was always content. Therefore, it was a quick way for them to check what the date was. Oh, brilliant. Uh, I really like that. Because <laughs> on computers in those days, unless you actually knew where to look on the interface, one presumes, and, and they couldn't necessarily find out what the day was. Even the earliest feature phones didn't necessarily have a date on display, which is the time. So anyway, this was somebody's clever and convenient way to find out what the day of the month was, which I was amused by. Um, but it's worth saying, I mean, this was actually a kind of very p busy period. I mean, it, in many ways, I think this is when uh, you made your name. I mean, 3Lib was big in the Cyan world, but then you're also, you know, that was growing. You're also doing applications. We've already mentioned 
uh, mapper, which was actually a very sophisticated GIS application. Yeah. Uh, I should say sophisticated for its time in terms of mobile devices for UK, Ireland and uh, and France. I think there was a version for Greater London as well. Yeah. And, uh, and tell us just a little bit about that. Well, the, the interesting thing is that it was all input by hand, all the data, and people are going to be shocked at that and be horrified. How on earth could you input all the data for countries, literally countries, by hand? Partly it wasn't at terrifically high resolution and everything was rounded to the nearest, I think it was a tenth of a mile or nearest kilometre, something like that. I was basically using the OS grid references, the, the tenth, one-tenth of each OS grid reference, if people know in the UK know the Ordnance Survey maps. And I did, I input by hand Road junctions and town locations, hotels, little chefs, viewpoints, airfields, tourist attractions. And then pe users of MapperGB started sending in their own overlays they'd made for their own niche interests, you know, viewpoints and concrete structures or whatever. And and it was, genu it was a genuine community thing and it, and it grew and grew and grew. And I, I, I really enjoyed it. It was a lot of work doing all that digitization by hand. But after I'd copied all those floppy disk crave, it was kind of a light relief for the afternoon. <laughs> yeah and um it's worth saying that at this time you also saw um well actually this was a bit later on with palm top software coming in yeah. when they were introducing kind of more professional and that there was definitely a decline in the shareware scene to an extent uh, i'm not sure if there's any one thing you could point to to causing it um but i think some of that early community spirit and sense was was lost a little bit um and we're moving on towards 2000 here um, and and that was kind of not the end, but it was sort of um, the end of the kind of peak period yeah. of your sort of software de development, I think it's fair yeah. to say. There were lots of factors. I mean, one was the fact the internet was coming on stream and pe more and more people could get software online, for example, which has helped to decimated my three lip um, floppy disk copying business, but uh, <laughs> I didn't mind. It didn't let me distribute my own software more easily. Um, yes, there were more, the bigger companies were coming in, people like PalmTop Software, who uh, became TomTom. They introduced Root Planner for the Scion, and then, of course, they wrote software for the early Nokia communicators and, and, and on from there. You had Palm, over in the America started with their Palm PDAs, which I was also a fan of. And, of the, you know, a touch-based interface again, but coming at PDAs, personal digital assistants from a very different direction. And then, of course, the whole rise of telephony and people moving away from standalone PDAs to something which had enough of the information they wanted in their hand, but it was also their phone and their access to the internet, even though it was a very primitive um, access to the internet. And, and the, the web pages they were accessing were very primitive. The applications were very primitive, but it, the idea of an all-in-one device I certainly was, um, was 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 certainly hot off the press. I remember Rick Andrews at one of our various pub meets who was working for Symbian at the time. He had one of the very first Nokia communicators. And I always remember him. We, we were there with it, prancing around with our Scion palm tops and our, our Ericsson dial-up infrared modems and, and our even our early palm pdas and he brandished the first nokia 9210 and said that this is the future and we we kind of knew it probably was the future we could see the, the all-in-one concept but it, of course those early communicators they, they weren't anything like the sophisticated as what we have today and for people who are brought up on those early scion palm tops which was a full multitasking touch-based object-oriented operating system um, that, that that scion was so so ahead of its time. I, even to this day, I people I still get people phoning me up in 2016 saying, "I've got a scion, Steve, and I've got a problem, or I need a particular application, or how do I do something?" I think, how is it possible they're using 20 year old technology and still happy with it? But it just shows how far ahead they were.
Yeah, it, it does absolutely amaze me. And I think, I mean, I, I had a Cyan 5 um, and yes, it was a long way ahead of its time. And leaving aside the fact that it was all based on technology of that era in terms of, yes, it was a monocone screen and yes, there was, you know, memory uh, stuff. So, but just, yeah, as you say, it really felt like it was a computer in its pocket. You you mentioned Symbian back there. It's worth saying, I think all part of this transition um, was Cyan actually kind of, was developing software in the next version of its operating system. Um, and actually, that was eventually spun out of Cyan. And so you talked about the end of Cyan hardware, but it very much lived on in the Symbian software. Yeah. But before we get to that in more detail, I do actually want to sort of, you know, we've talked about Steve, the uh, shareware megastar. Um, now, you were also getting into kind of journalism and writing for mobile computing. I mean, partly that came out of your daily updates and articles on 3lib but you also were producing effectively uh, in partnership with uh, palm top magazine which was a paper a dead tree magazine so this was even really before the internet and this idea of blogs had come along yeah this was kind of running in parallel to everything we've been saying and it ran for about five or six years um basically steve clack who lives up oxford way not too far away from me contacted me to suggest that i should start a magazine about science I mean, a great idea. I said, brilliant idea, but I'm too busy. Could you do it instead? So with me as a contributor. <laughs> so basically he did it and I started writing as a small venture. And then over time, as the 3Lib and the Shareware Library stuff and my own programming started declining, I started doing more and more writing for him. And over a decade, we, uh, yes, we had thousands of subscribers. Palm Top Magazine ran to over 100 issues and we ended up with six writers, four of whom were me. <laughs> three under pseudonyms uh, and two were steve clack one under a false name we just wanted to try and create more of an impression of editorial variety at its peak i think yeah we had thousands of subscribers none of whom had a clue that the six writers were actually just two people but uh, i think we got away with it a bit of a contract rafe but sometimes to, to, you have to generate the impression of activity oh, even when there's you. not quite so much yeah and i i was a subscriber to this um, and it was one of my favorite magazines. And it's interesting. I mean, it's it's honestly not that that long ago. I mean, I think, as you said, it, it ran to sort of, well, 2000 or around that period. Um, and it was the only place you could get this really high yeah. quality content. Um, and I mean, looking back on it now, and as we were talking about this, this show before coming on, it's amazing to me that things have changed so much that that's disappeared. But um, there were some travails. It wasn't just pseudonyms that were causing you problems with uh, with Palm Top. I mean, I think people underestimate the sheer amount of work involved in that, but there were also yeah. some unfortunate coincidences. Yes, I know exactly what you're referring to. <laughs> There's one incident that sticks in mind. We, we just done, we've just done an issue. We just put it together, written it, and edited it, and had the magazines printed. They come back from the printers, delivered on a forklift truck, etc. And we did it. The issue was centered around using your scion when traveling. And the cover graphic was of an airliner over the cityscape of New York. Now, the magazines, all 2000 of them, uh, arrived back and Steve Clack and his partner had started sending them out in the mail. This was September the 10th, 2001. <laughs> and you can guess the rest. Airliners yeah. over New York crashing into skyscrapers, thousands dead. And I... We just felt so bad for the issues that had gone out and d distorted all the issues, filling up Steve's hole and wondering what on earth to do with them when the covers were so incredibly insensitive. So I believe we put a sticker over the airplane on the cover. So it just showed a cityscape and hoped people didn't realise it was a might be New York. Um, but what a coincidence. I mean, what are the chances of that? A magazine cover that, that pre predicted 9-11 by one day. Yeah, and, and it's amazing. So also in this, this period, we already alluded to it, 
uh, Proteer, which was the code name for the Science Series Five. But yeah. you also had uh, something of a special edition on this on this occasion, I believe. Well, the all the early developers that and I was included, thankfully, in the people who have been you know prominent uh, Scion programmers in the past. Um, we got invited up and and uh, given these these lime green Series Five prototypes, and you, the I think the idea was you couldn't sell them because they're such a shocking color. But I I loved <laughs> my green green Series Five, and I was re- real shame when it it died. And of course, these old Scion it's worth saying in these modern days when we're talking about durability and waterproofing and so forth these things you couldn't even use them for a year without them breaking because they were reliant in the clamshell mechanism on these ribbon cables between the two halves and if you flex those ribbon cables enough times they do start to break um, people may point to printer ribbon cables and say why didn't cyan use those and i've no, i can't answer that <laughs> i wish they had but uh, anyone who's used a cyan for more than a couple of years will be familiar with cracked ribbon syndrome yeah, indeed, I remember that happening to, to myself, and the repair wasn't entirely straightforward. Yeah. Um, but this was running Epoch 32, as you have said, it's a forerunner of uh, Symbian OS. But still, amazingly, I mean, and it was the keyboard that really, I think, wowed everyone on the Series 5. Still running on two AA batteries for two weeks, which, when you consider battery life on a mo- modern smartphone, is absolutely amazing. Yeah, yeah. The shareware library by now, just to finish on 3Lib, was now on a CD. I, I got fed up with floppies and and it had, had grown basically dozens of floppies would have been needed, even with the Scion applications only being 50 kilobytes or so. The eventual Scion library grew to about 300 megabytes, which still fitted happily on a CD, though. So I, I was burning CDs. I th- and yes, Rafe, I then went through multiple CD burners every, every <laughs> single year. Anyway. Um, um, and so so I'm, I'm curious, Steve. I mean, obviously, we're now talking about, you know, 16 years ago since um, 3D was at, at, at its heyday in terms of the the cd do you, do you still get you know you've said people still call you up occasionally about the sound devices do you still occasionally send out cds and still fulfill your role as kind of the master of the science software scene <laughs> once every couple of months i get some soul saying yes i'd like a copy of the science library and i'd say do you do know it hasn't been updated for, for 13 years don't you oh yes we don't mind we just want the software and you, you kind of think how are they using it um it's not just the fact they're using your old technology but hooking a scion up with the Scion RS232 serial link cable. I mean, you remember serial ports, Rafe, do, do you? I do, yeah, I do. Yeah. It was it was a real real hassle. I mean, the only thing I can think of is that they were somehow getting it onto the, the, the CF disk, which, um, um, for those that don't know, is kind of the forerunner of the micro SD and SD cards we have today. But they were enormous. Um, yeah. And getting that, you know, you can transfer sideloading effectively the sys files which was the install format files for those signs but i mean yes i'm i'm in awe of anyone who's still using a sign today just i mean yes great machines and amazing that they can still do the yeah. job but I think it's fair to say things have moved on a bit since yeah. then. Yeah, just getting a Scion hooked up to a modern PC is insanely tricky for a non-geek, let alone navigating through folder structures, modules which were shareware, which can't now be registered because the authors have moved on or died. Um, m- maybe they're using some kind of USB to serial adapter and some special software that mimics the old connectivity. I don't know. It's, it's, it's an absolute nightmare. I gave up trying to do it 10 years ago, but the, the brave souls who still do it, just every now and then I hear from them. It's good to hear from them. If you right there well done the science still a great device huh. yeah so as as the millennium term this was really the era of symbian and you've already talked about rick andrews um appearing at one of your pub meets and seeing yep. the, the potential but i mean presumably also at this time you were seeing some of the other all-in-one devices come out i mean i know you did things with palm user which was kind of a derivation of the palm top magazine and yep. stuff in the palm and the trio world um you were quite active there as well 
Yeah, absolutely. I loved the the first Palm organizers. Um, the 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 contrast between the keyboard based Scion and the stylus based Palm, and at the same time on the th- on the my, my third hand, if you like, like the early Nokia communicators, um, it was just so exciting. The different form factors, the different use cases, that what some were good at, others were bad at, and vice versa. Um, the handspring, which came out of um, Palm, the the founders of Palm went off to join to start this new company, and they produced the Trio smartphones um, after the, after the initial visors, which people may not remember. But the Trio was really exciting because it was again, as with the Nokia communicator over in Europe, the Trio was the the p- personal digital assistant and a phone built in with the internet um, and the the dial up access, if you like baked in out of the box and very very exciting i still remember the trio 270 which was the color version and that was just so exciting to see a a color interface on something that fitted literally in the palm of your hand very exciting um just I suppose it's worth mentioning it rafe at this point roughly i got i met you for the very first time at uh, 4th of october 2004 i've done the research 4th wow. of october 2004 which was 12 years ago i got together with you and you and for the very first time in the flesh the evening before the very first official symbian show in london and i informally signed up as it were and uh, thereafter all about symbian was a, a go for me yeah and the, the rest is history and i i very well remember because it was basically the first pub meet uh, i think that i'd ever run and as you say it was one of the very first symbian shows and it was a pretty small community then but we had an amazing number of people came and packed out out the pub and um, I can tell Steve this now many years later. I was something in awe of meeting the Steve Litchfield, who I'd admired for many <laughs> years as a result of, of the Scion thing. And I think we, we did hit it off immediately. Um, and we've never actually seen that much of each other in person. It's tended to be at events and then, of course, talking yeah. over the Internet and email and, lots and, and the rest of history. I mean, I think actually we might um, come back and talk about some of the early days of All About Simian another time because we're starting to yeah. run quite long on, on this podcast. but. That went through all the years of sort of Series 80, UIQ, S60 or Series 60 as it was before. Um, I mean, there's some really great stories to share from over the years. And so I think we will do that in in part um, another time. Um, And many of you would have been on the journey with us, for which which my thanks. Um, But I also want to say it's been absolutely fantastic working with uh, Steve over the years. And it was a real privilege to have someone who was so knowledgeable about the mobile industry and so I thought it was a massive coup when he actually signed up and was willing to contribute to All About Symbian. Um, and back then, I think it may have still been called All About ER6, much to my kind of, which stood for Epoch Release 6, with uh, Epoch Release 5 being the Epoch 32 on the, the Cyan 5. Um, but it's fair to say, uh, Steve, that although you were, of course, doing a lot of work for All About Symbian, you absolutely were continuing to maintain independent activities outside of the AAS uh, name. And... I think this is worth mentioning because you really were a massively early pioneer uh, with video. And it's one of the, you know, the first people I know to be regularly publishing a video show. And this is, of course, um, the smartphone show, which, uh, as far as I'm aware, that started right at the beginning of 2006. Am I right on that? Ten years ago? Yes. First of January 2006. I've been producing video podcasts, video shows for 11 years now, which feels like a lifetime. But I, 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 I keep saying I predated YouTube, which just to make people's jaws drop. In actual fact, if, if, you're t- if you're being pedantic, YouTube started a few months before I did, but they didn't get their act together until well into 2006. So for the first half, first half a year or so, 
I had to put up my phone show, as, as it, or the smartphone show as it then was, out as quarter VGA QuickTime Movies MOV files that I could. I found I could embed in web pages if people had the right browser and operating system combinations. It was so clunky then, Ray, if you wouldn't believe it. And obviously, people could download them and then download QuickTime Player, and then but people watched them. And this was quarter VGA. This was incredibly low resolution. Think postage stamp <laughs> video, but that was all anyone had back in two thousand and six. Um, later that year, I started using the Nokia N nine to shoot video and that was when things really kicked into high gear because i was able to embed videos at a massive a massive vga 480p resolution with (laughs) stereo sound wow yeah i i remember watching some of the um uh, early versions of the smartphone show and just thinking yeah i can i can definitely see the future got to do something about that but it was a massive investment in time and i think yeah there's something people may still not realize the amount of time you actually put into researching and scripting the shows and it definitely shows in in the quality but also i mean there was definitely a, a unique selling point in that you were one of the very few people actually shooting on a phone so you're kind of living the yeah. multimedia computer dream as nokia would have it yeah and that well i could only do that because of nokia's foresight and nokia's innovative hardware which allowed the quality I mean, that bear in mind when i was shooting videos on the nokia n93 in 2006 the average um phone camera was would be lucky if it shot video at all and if so at a terrible quality terrible audio terrible resolution so because nokia was such pi- pioneers here in terms of imaging and, and video um, I was able to produce something that was at least watchable. I remember switching to the Nokia N86 in early 2009 and getting comments about how much sharper the video was and how much better the sound was. And Nokia kept pushing the boundaries. And to this day, I still shoot in 2016. I still shoot my phone show in on the Nokia 808, which is now, what, three, four years old, which is just amazing. But it still shoots video and captures the audio from that video better than any other phone in the world, which is just amazing. Yeah, and that, I mean the eight oh eight. I'm sure we're going to do some reminiscence when when we do this sort of second part of Steve Origins. I suspect it might turn into Origins of all about Simeon and Rafe and Steve chatting about their favourite devices and events we were at, which we should definitely do. Uh, and the eight oh eight has a soft spot in a lot of our our hearts. But amazing in terms of the technology and you know actually how quickly things moved on from kind of you know it was those early years you know going back to the n93 and then very quickly moving on through some of those other kind of camera focused nokia devices um one thing i do just want to touch on on here is um the smartphone show also led to the phone show chat that was kind of an offshoot of that but um one thing we should just cover is uh, you know what what the motivation for doing the show is and actually have you been able to sort of get paid for doing it at all steve i do it partly for the love of it because i love doing i love sh- messing around with technology i love sharing my insights whether it's writing for your sites or for other sites if if there are any out there are there any other good sites other than all about symbian and all about windows phone maybe there are <laughs> uh, but uh, partly for that partly because i want to share my my thoughts with the world um partly because i love tinkering around with a video and editing and massaging content and making it entertaining and fun and enjoying the fact that people enjoy what i do um, I do ask for donations and I've got some people who donate to help me make the phone show. That's good. I occasionally had sponsors and advertisers, which is also good. I just enjoy it. And we've had 400 hours now of phone related chat on PSC alone. You mentioned the number of AAS and AWP podcasts. Add that to another 400 hours of me rabbiting on with Ted <laughs> Salmon on the, on PSC over seven years. That's an awful lot of podcasting. And, and you've even been a guest yourself a couple of times, Rafe. I, I have and very much enjoyed it. So I, I just want to give actually a big shout out to people here. Um, excellent opportunity to go and contribute to uh, 
uh, Steve's tip jar on this. All the details are on the uh, three lib site or on the phone chat, chat, phone show chat and smartphone show uh, site if you'd like to do that. And I'd, I'd really encourage you to do so because it's amazing commitment that Steve's had over 11 years of the video show and sort of seven years for the, the, the podcast show. And it does take an enormous amount of work. And um, I just have to say plaudits because I have at least an inkling of the amount of effort involved. And it always leaves me in awe of the amount of content and editing and everything else that Steve does to, to produce them is able to do. So, I mean, that that's Steve. I mean, that, that's probably kind of, you know, sums up your, your big presence in um, kind of the journalism world. But it's worth saying you were and have been and continue to contribute to many other sites as well. So we've hit, hit the high notes, but there were some other bits and pieces you've been doing over the last decade as well. I'm not quite sure whether you want to go into my abject failures or just the other things I do. <laughs> I, back in the Scion day, I, I, I started work on a flight simulator and then had to abandon that because it just wasn't good enough. And then I started working on a pinball game and I had to abandon that. And it's, 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 it's heart-wrenching when you've put 10, 20, 30, 50, 100 man-hours into programming something and then you have to scrap it before it sees the light of day. It's just so heart-wrenching. Heart but uh, there were a few of those failures. Not everything really panned out as, I, as I'd wanted it to. I have been writing, in addition to Palm Top Magazine, which, they, which I think died about 2001, 2002. So these, everything like operating systems has its lifespan. They, things, things, they get born, they get used, they get enjoyed, and one day they die or they fade away. I think that, that's quite normal. I've been writing also for androidbeat.com a bit, uh, doing reviews, and iphonehacks.com doing reviews and features. They're not on the same scale as my AWP writings, you'll be glad to hear, Rafe, but I, I, I have been uh -huh. trying, to, trying to spread my wings and not have all my eggs in one basket. Yeah, which, which is, is very wise, especially given what's happened uh, to Nokia over the last few years or so. Uh, I think this is probably, um, because we're heading towards the 50-minute yeah. mark or so on this podcast, it's a good uh, place to pause. But it's pretty clear we've actually got a whole big section to talk about. And um, in the notes, it's sort of talking about the all about Symbian years in particular, but also following up on the all about Windows Phone years and some of the behind-the-scenes story of you know events you've been to, PRs and getting hands-on devices um, but I just want to kind of finish by summarising by saying uh, that Steve has uh, spent 23 years in the mobile industry, which I mean must be nearly a record, um, and certainly for people writing about it publicly and being a journalist, but also just in general. Um, yeah. And and I apologise, Steve, because I see in the notes that you say that you're not old, because you are you are, are indeed as young as you feel. Um, so you, you only seem old to me because of your wisdom and experience. And <laughs> let me let me say a very genuine and heartfelt thanks because it's been brilliant having you as a, a partner over the years, and hopefully everyone's really enjoyed hearing about some of your origins on this podcast. It's been absolutely fantastic to walk through it. Lovely. Okay. Well, I think there's more to come. With this, this, we may have a part two, as you say, covering the subjects you've just mentioned. But yeah, it's been great fun ch chatting about my early days. I'm sure if, if you didn't know half those stories, then hopefully most of our listeners won't have heard them either. So uh, yeah, but really enjoyed it. And we'll be back for more in a, a podcast very soon. Thank you.